Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Cantor has been working with nonprofit organizations since 1982 as a staff member, executive, board leader, and consultant. He built a national following on issues affecting the nonprofit sector as a frequent contributor to the opinion pages of the Chronicle Philanthropy and other leading journals, and has been cited in publications from the New York Times to Vanity Fair to The Atlantic. We caught up with Al at his home in New Hampshire following the state's presidential primary. Welcome to the program, Al. It's it's great to have you. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to be part of this. Well, you've been doing a number of these sessions, and we've had uh, kind of different um, views of different things that you talk about and think about, but this is a chance to do kind of a deeper dive into who is Al Cantor. Um, and maybe we can start with where you're from. Are you actually a native New Hampshireite? No, there aren't that many native New Hampshireites, actually. I I grew up in northeastern Connecticut. Uh, I'm clear to point out that I was from the Red Sox corner of the state as opposed to the New York Yankee part of the state. And it was a very rural area, and uh, that's where I came of age. But uh, you, you do seem to have taken to your adoptive state in a pretty big way. I, I love New Hampshire. It is small enough that you kind of can know everybody. Um, I think you know, Jay, that we just wrapped up the New Hampshire primary. I cannot defend why we of all states have that experience, but I certainly love that uh, close proximity to all of the um, uh, potential future presidents. But it's also the kind of thing, you know, if I you know, I, I'm on a first name basis with all four of our congressional delegation, which is kind of a cool thing. Meanwhile, it's a beautiful place, and it's um, it's it's been a great place to raise kids, and it's not that far from Boston. How did it come about that you became so involved in that, and to meet all the members of the congressional delegation? And I, I think you've also said that you've been to 40 or so meetings in this primary season alone. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm an extrovert and I'm very interested. You know, I'm an extrovert and I care deeply about society and politics. Uh, so it's an opportunity. And, you know, I will tell you that um, I have a friend who's in my uh, book club and he, uh, Ron and his wife, Jerry, they themselves hosted 12 different candidates at their home, which is a mile from my house. Um so it's not as though I even have to go and stand in line outside of a gym in the cold weather. Uh, many of these meetings are very intimate and, you know, 40 or 50 people in a living room. And it's it's an extraordinary opportunity. And you get to ask hard questions. And I take the I take the approach that I am I am the most important person in the room because I am a New Hampshire voter. And that sounds entitled than it is. But I try not to defer to the candidates, but really try to draw draw out where they stand on issues. 
Do you think that that's a common sentiment or are you bringing something to that discussion that also comes from the rest of your work? I mean, the idea of asking questions in that way with that mindset, is that fairly unique or is that part of what it means to to live and breathe in New Hampshire, a place where these things really kick off? Well, there are a lot of folks who, you know, don't enjoy those settings and don't go at all. And other people, yeah, are are less um, less intentional about the questions they ask. Uh, I did have an interesting interaction with one of, but but I think I think certainly my work in the field informs um, the conversations. Uh, one of the candidates, actually two of the candidates, and I had extended conversations about donor advised funds. Um, but another time, I. I referenced a book by Anand Giridardis, which I talked I talked about that on my on my uh, presentation, and um, and um, Anand, the, the author, has a follower. He has half a million followers on Twitter, and somehow the tape of my asking that question ended up on his on his Twitter feed. And you know, this this is how I'd like to be remembered. They said he he declared me. The, the greatest voter in America and a brilliant New Hampshire man. And of course he had had his tongue in cheek because he was so pleased that I referenced his book and pronounced his name correctly. But I will, um, I, I, now whenever I, I ask my kids to do something and uh, they ignore me, I remind them that I am the best voter in America. So they have to pay attention. <laughs> well, you're also talking a lot about, in fact, you did in the Falash class about, his big subject, at least of his most recent book, and that is this this wealth inequality. It's very real, and we focus on it in politics, and we also focus on it in fundraising. But you've been talking about both. Have you been bringing kind of the the nonprofit perspective on that um, to the political discussion, and vice versa? I, I I've tried to, and and again, you know, my moments with the candidates, I I've been in the room with them a lot. Uh, my interactions with them are. You know, relatively brief. Um, I will say this: one of the interesting um, subjects that's come up here is that there have been some, um, and this is on the state and local level, but there has been money coming into the state of New Hampshire for some quote-unquote educational reforms, unquote, and they've sort of been hammered or gaveled right through because they did not take taxpayer dollars. And I've heard superintendents and members of the state cabinet refer to them as, you know, being f funded by very reputable philanthropies. And <laughs> I've been raising the issue, which probably most people in the audience would, to say, do not assume that a philanthropy is responsible, that a foundation does not have a vested political and personal interest. That they, you know, so so I have been a voice of skepticism, and about about accepting charitable dollars for public policy. I've been doing that right here in New Hampshire uh, for our policies, and I I try to remind people about that, um, you know, on the presidential level too. That skepticism uh, seems to be a big a big piece of of a lot of your 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 work, early, and it's often a witty skepticism too. Uh, when you've talked about everything from donor advised funds to the presidential election process, um, and even when you're just describing New Hampshire, the idea that there is a small number of people who have what some might describe as an outsized influence, but but it is it is a chance for for folks uh, to just go and ask a question of a candidate or 
in the case of what you've done with donor advised funds to just ask, well, is this the right way that we manage our philanthropy? Could, could you yeah. talk about, about that, especially on the donor advised fund front? What, what is it that you've given them a real beating? What's your primary challenge to donor advised funds? Well, there's a, there's a brilliant historian from Temple University named Lila Corwin Berman, and she's done research on how the modern donor advised fund came into being. And she, she, in her words at a conference where we both spoke, um, donor advised funds were created by very smart tax attorneys who knew the tax code well and read it with a sense of permission. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that in 1969, before 1969, all charity was charity. And whether it was a private foundation or what we now call a public charity, they were all just sort of charitable institutions. And Congress divided the, 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 the charitable world into two parts because they were suspicious about private foundations. They were suspicious about donors retaining control over their assets after they supposedly gave them away to charity. And so a private found, so private foundation, that's where all these rules came in, where they have to devote 5% annually to charitable purposes, where the 990 PFs that foundations fill out, where they give every detail, every one they pay, every grant they make, every investment. Because the notion is the donor has absolute control. We want to keep an eye on them. And the tax advantages are quite a bit less, particularly with private foundations, with gifts of appreciated, um, you know, non, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, non-liquid assets. So real estate, privately held stock. You know, if you give, if you give hugely appreciated stock in the company you founded, to your foundation, you only get the tax deduction for the amount that it cost you originally. Um, But if you give that stock to a public charity, which is overseen by a publicly responsible board of directors, um, then then you get the market rate value for that contribution. And a public charity, in contrast to a private foundation, does not have to share every bit of information about how it does its operations. Donor advised funds live in this challenging gray area where the donors, as as donor advised funds have evolved, the donors really have absolute control. It is very rare where a grant is not made that a donor advises on. So they function as private foundations, but there's no transparency. So we don't know what goes on there. Um, moreover, there's no requirement that money go out the door in a particular year or ever. So my criticisms boil down to two. We need to know what's going on in these funds. So we need some transparency, even if it's anonymous. We need to know how many funds, what each fund looks like, how big are the assets, how much has gone out so that we, we see that. Um, but, but the other issue is, you know, they need these, these people are getting full, the fullest possible charitable deduction because this is a considered part of the donor advised funds are considered part of the public charity to which they belong. And consequently, um, you know, the money can sit there and we have to we have to know that it's going out the door. And, um, you know, I have been suggesting along with other people that say within seven years, 10 years 
all the money that's contributed to a cha- when the money is contributed to charity uh, a donor advised fund it needs to be in the hands of an actual operating charity um the principal and income earned um and i think all of my problems would disappear with donor advised funds if those two things happen and we're talking right after an announcement a very vague announcement from Jeff Bezos of Amazon, uh, right. saying that he is going to dedicate $10 billion uh, to uh, a new earth fund uh, right. named himself. We don't know, as far as I know, we don't know the structure of that fund or what the payouts will be, or if there's an application process, if it's an endowed foundation. I don't think any of that has been uh, explained yet, but I wonder if this is a marker of a further uh, move towards the same thing you've seen with donor advised funds, uh, where people have control, uh, an outsized measure of control over their monies, um, or is this marking a, perhaps an opportunity uh, where I mean, they interact more with us? Yeah, I, I'm glad you raised that, Jay. It could go either way. Um, if Bezos, if Jeff Bezos is um, non-transparent about this, if he doesn't share what's going on, that's a problem. If he treats this as a permanent endowment, which I think would be uh, so opposite the mission that he proclaims, uh, it's not funny, that would be a problem. In other words, we need climate change action now. We needed it 30 or 40 years ago. And so I, I did read some early uh, analysis of this. People don't really know, but some people assumed it was going to be a permanent endowment. And goodness, this will create four or five hundred thousand million dollars a year in distributions. Well, no, the whole ten billion needs to go out uh, and whatever it earns in the meantime within a few years because we're facing a climate catastrophe. Um, I, I know somebody who runs a very large foundation in Boston. And I gave him a hard time because he was only spending 5%. And their single largest uh, mission issue was climate change. And I said, you know, you're only giving out 5% a year. By my calculation, your $3 billion foundation will end up being a $50 billion foundation in 100 years. But your fancy Boston offices are going to be under 25 feet of seawater. So you've got to spend the money now to save the planet, to feed children, to house the hungry, invest in the planet, invest in people. If Jeff Bezos goes in that route, it would be huge. If he creates a, a something that nobody understands that trickles out money, it, it'll just be a PR stunt. And you're talking about this not just as someone who's been in this field for a long time and, and has gotten to know some of these donors, but... You're also a member of this 4,000-footer club, right? <laughs> My greatest accomplishment, Jay. Uh, yeah, there, there are a bunch of us in New Hampshire who set out to climb every 4,000-foot peak in the state, which does not sound like much to our friends in Colorado. But these are very – a lot of these are very rugged climbs um, because the trails were made before people knew how to make trails. They just sort of go right up the ridgeline or right up the – of the stream. And in my 50s, I'm now 61, I set out to climb all of those. And I celebrated my 
48th and final peak by coming down and having my left knee replaced surgically. Uh, I kind of, I kind of battered it into submission, and the right knee I'm keeping as a souvenir of my travels. <laughs> well, I, I, I trust that that hasn't uh, turned you off to the environment, but instead given you a greater appreciation for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I confess, I'm. You know, you you refer to me as, as as a skeptic, and I am about certain things. I'm really an upbeat guy in most ways, and I think you know you know you know me personally. And, um, but I also do really love goals. I think that might be why I ended up in uh, being a pretty effective fundraiser. And it's I like goals, and so for me, it was a physical goal because I am not a small, nimble person. So to climb all those mountains required a lot of planning and a lot of discomfort. And so I feel ridiculously proud that I did that. And and I know that you've taken on projects like that with your clients, and you've obviously taken on some of these big issues and this, with the same kind of stamina that you've taken on these these 4,000 uh, foot uh, mountains there in New Hampshire. What What's the next big goal for you? Well, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about toward the end of the um, session, um, I am really, that was raised by one of our participants, you, you know, it would be wonderful to create a national movement or to be part of a national movement that reinforces for donors the power they have to make change and not just the power they have to have power. And I would love to participate in that. And meanwhile, you know, the, the whole notion of getting them to realize that giving now by investing in a child investing in a student, investing in saving a species. Um, this, is a, this is far more important than having your money invested in Wall Street. Um, and I tell you, just I love the variety of clients that I have. Um, so, so I'm always interested in the content of the, of the work I do and how they, how they make a living, how they, how they get by, what their cultures are. So I find uh, consulting endlessly fascinating, but I would love to, you know, give more keynote addresses around the country and and help with the larger issues. Even while I help my clients figure out, gosh, how are we gonna find that two hundred thousand dollars or that two million dollars we need to really make our mission sing? Thank you, Al. This has been this has been great. Great window on your world. Really well, thank you, thank you, Jay. I, I, of course, I always enjoy. Uh, hanging out with you and through you, you know, a few hundred other people. So thank you so much. All right, my pleasure. Next time, though, we'll have to make you sing and live up to your name. <laughs> um, okay, that'll be the time technology fails me, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Al. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.